0: Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we'll be looking at verse 3. We'll go ahead and, and read the first three verses of this chapter just to remind us of the prologue and our context and in the book. The first commandment is about true worship. Most people think of, of worship as, as something that we do at various parts of the day. Right, we think of participating in, in corporate worship, or family worship, or even private worship, and, and that sort of makes up our time of worship. Uh, we aren't really, if we're not engaged in one of those activities, then you know, we're not really worshiping. But that's not true. And we've said this many times here Right? Your circumstances may change daily, hourly, even by the minute, but the object of your worship should never change. Worship is not optional. It's instinctive. We were made for worship, so we're always worshiping someone or something. It's just that that object oftentimes does shift. And so what are you worshiping right now? Think about that for a moment. What is it that's on your mind as you think about worship? What? What is your mind distracted by? What did you wake up thinking about? What have you been going to bed? Wrestling with? What brings anxiety? Where are you confident? Who are you trusting? Pastoral ministry provides constant pressure for me to face the idols of my own heart. Security, success, reputation. These are things that that I struggle putting in place of God. Putting my worrying about my security, worrying about what if what if everything is gone tomorrow? What if what if what if this church is, is shut down? What would I do? Right, what if um, if if this if this ultimately is a failure? All right, our uh, our response to the coronavirus. What if it's a a total failure? What if the churches are closing all over the place? What if my reputation? Is drug through the mud. And these are our, our consequences that, that we have to consider at this time. The things we say, the things we do, we will be held accountable for those things in the eye of the public, but far more importantly, far more importantly, we'll be held accountable before God. So in our questioning, in our thinking, With this lockdown, where has your attention been scattered? I'll be honest, in the beginning, I initially shifted between learning a whole lot about new technology, trying to figure out how to move things online, to learning a lot about Tiger King and various entertainment options. Then I transitioned from wondering why more people weren't staying home to wondering where our freedom and constitutional rights had gone. At first, I wanted worship and maybe haircuts to be considered essential. Now I think all jobs at some level are considered essential. And we will argue and wrestle with these things for the rest of our lives. And I know that we can worship God truly and still have concerns for these things. I still have concerns about uh, being stripped of our fundamental rights. But I know that myself, I have often become imbalanced. I put far too much emphasis. It's become an obsession at times. Thinking about the virus, thinking about uh, all the details, trying to become a medical expert, trying to become a, a political expert, trying to become a legal expert. It's simply not my calling, And right? I've become imbalanced, distracted, and I think it's important that we take some time to remind ourselves of what's most important, right? I think early on, it was easy to take advantage of things slowing down and to appreciate that even, right? To, to take advantage of maybe spending a little more time in the Word, reading, spending more time in prayer, Lately, I've become you know, more invested in cranking things back up to normal speed and that's probably not for the best. It's not always a good thing. So the question is not whether or not we're worshiping at any given moment, it's who and what we're worshiping. And to what are we devoting our attention? To what are we investing our energy? Where are we putting all of our power what are we trusting? Who are we following? This shouldn't be an easy question to answer at any point, and especially now with our circumstances. But it's probably quite easy to see how often we fail. This first commandment teaches us that God alone is worthy to receive all of the worship that he created us to offer. He is worthy to receive all of the worship that he created us to offer. We've been created for worship and we've been created to offer that worship in his direction to him at all times, in all places. And so let's ask him for his help in understanding this passage as we consider it this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Ten Commandments, and we thank you for this foundational commandment that we begin with, this first commandment. Help us to consider it this morning. Help us to take it with us throughout the week. Help us to recall how foundational this is for all of the other commandments, for morality in general. Lord, we need to reflect. We need to give our, our minds and our attention and our hearts to this command. Lord, and we we remember it is because of the prologue, it is because you have rescued us that we can even begin to consider this first commandment. Because you have brought us out of our sin and misery and you've united us to your son and that it's in him that now we are being renewed so that we can offer you genuine and true worship. So, Lord, give us eyes to see this truth. Give us ears to hear it. Give us hearts that are softened, convicted in ways that we have dishonored you, convicted of the many ways that we've made idols in our thoughts, in our, uh, that we've, we've worshipped them in our actions, and even with our words, expressing praise for idols instead of you. Lord, bring us back to yourself this morning. Cause us to give you and you alone the glory that you are due. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. This is God's holy word. Let's begin with the, the positive side of this commandment. We can only have no other gods before the Lord if we offer right worship to the one true God. All right, so we consider, first of all, the duties that are required in the first commandment. The duties required in the first commandment. The, the context in which these commandments were given, remember, was uh, to the Israelites as they had escaped Egypt. They had been rescued, in fact, out of Egypt, and, and the, the ten plagues that, have, that had fallen upon the Egyptians. Each, each one of those plagues has been shown to be associated with the various Egyptian gods, pagan gods. The Egyptians believed that there were actually no gods in the desert, in the wilderness, that that was where you would find dangerous snakes. And so think about the sign that God gave to Moses and to Aaron. He he said that if he threw down his staff, that staff would turn into a snake and that would show that he had the authority of God. And as he stood before Pharaoh, uh, Aaron, in fact, throws his staff down. It turns into a, stake, a snake. And, and then Pharaoh's own magicians are capable of doing the same thing. And so you wonder, well, maybe, maybe he doesn't have the authority, but what happens? Immediately, Aaron's staff devours the snake, the staff from the magicians, proving that God was sovereign over these Egyptian deities, when when God, gave, um, when God turned the Nile River into blood, that was another example of God having sovereign authority. Uh, their God had no ability to prevent the water from turning to blood. You can say the same thing about the plague of frogs or the eclipse of the sun. All of them were meant to show God's superior power over the gods of the Egyptians. And so in the end, Pharaoh... And all of the Egyptians were forced to admit defeat. And that's an important context to consider because the God of Israel was quite different from the gods of the pagan nations. You see, pagans offered their worship to many gods. They had the God of weather. They had the God that represented the sun, the God of the land, the God of produce, the God of, of, of procreation. They they just had several gods that represented all the various activities that we might engage in throughout our lives. While they had many gods, the God of Israel demanded exclusive worship. You shall have no other gods before me. And so we'll consider that more fully in the next section, but the positive side of this command says that we are duty-bound to worship God according to his revelation. It's not just the God of our own making. It's not the God of the culture. It's not this God who just start, started the, the world in motion, who created things and then takes his hands off everything. It's the God as he has revealed himself to us in Scripture, that we are to worship. And so we must have a right knowledge about God in order to offer him right worship. If our chief end is to glorify God, then we must come before him with a proper attitude. We must meditate upon his revelation. We must remember, esteem, honor, and adore him. And this is true at all times, not just during corporate worship, not just during family worship, not just during private worship, but throughout our day. Every day of our lives. God must be the one we choose over anyone else. He receives the pinnacle of our love, our desire, our hope, and our delight. We come before him with reverence and faith, rejoicing in him with praise and thanksgiving. we yield to him in humility and patience and submission. We offer ourselves willingly before him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. And so when we worship God rightly, we offer him all of our love and honor with full expectation that he will receive our praise and even rejoice over us as his children. that he will pour out his spirit upon us. He will fill us with compassion for our neighbor. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 104, says that we acknowledge God as the true God and our God. He's not just the true God, he's our God. We actually have a covenant relationship with the one true God. He has revealed himself to us in such a way that we can come to know him personally. He first loved us by rescuing us out of slavery. For Israel, the, that slavery was personified by Egypt. For everyone, that slavery is personified by sin. That's the rescue that we've experienced. So those God has rescued out of slavery to their sin are now enabled to respond to God's prior love. Now the first commandment requires that we possess covenant faithfulness to the God who has first loved us, the God who has revealed himself and, and by his spirit drawn us to himself. It's only possible because of what God has done So the love of God finds its ultimate expression in his son who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. This exclusive claim means that we can only honor the first commandment if we worship God through Christ. It's only, it's not only important to think about what we are doing, but how we're doing it. And the motivation behind it. So when we grasp the true concept of worship, we are free to do so whenever and wherever we find ourselves. Or we can worship God whether we're gathered in a large group or at home by ourselves. And we recognize that there is something special and unique about corporate worship and we're not to forsake that. But there's also something glorious about being able to offer true and genuine worship to God wherever we are. And so I remember a, a distinctly significant moment when I was working as a, a manager in the seasonal department at Lowe's. Um, I was doing some extremely mundane task, like sweeping the floor. And if you don't know what the seasonal department in Lowe's is, it's the one when you first enter, it's to your left. It's, it's the largest department in the store, maybe uh Par, on par with the lumber um, which are on the, usually on the sides of the store and it's filled with patio furniture during, when that's in season, it's filled with plants when that's in season um, it, it's, it's got all your lawn mowers and your outdoor equipment um, it, it's, it's got kind of just the hodgepodge of, of outdoor stuff and it changes every season, so it's called the seasonal department you got the Christmas stuff right there during Christmas time so I was doing something. I was sweeping out, preparing probably for a, a sidewalk event the next day, and I was tired and frustrated, and I just wanted to go home. And as a department manager, I was working more hours than I should have in order to get the department ready. Um, but for whatever reason, at one moment, things just a light bulb turned on. And I realized that I could actually sweep with precision and with excellence for the glory of God. That I could do something so so simple, so mundane, so frustrating and agonizing, I could do it with, with careful precision to the glory of God. And so it radically transformed my mind frame. In that moment, I went from doing something that I thought was mind-numbingly boring into something that I completed with with gratitude. I was grateful for the privilege of doing it. On the other hand, if my mind is not properly engaged, even while I'm preaching the gospel from this pulpit, I can be distracted from worship. It, It it's, it goes both ways, right? It's not just the activity that you're doing, it's how you're doing it and why you're doing it that makes it worshipful. True worship, I should say. It's always going to be worship in some degree. But true worship that's offered to God for his glory So this command is is fundamental in guiding us, not only how to worship, but how to live a worship-filled life. This is that third use of the law as a map, as a guide for the believer. God has revealed himself to be worthy of all our praise. And so to turn our attention elsewhere is departing from God. It's to violate this command. We must recognize that God is over all and above all. God must be first in all things, in everything that we do. God must be central in all of our priorities. Paul said to the Corinthian church, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. If you can do something as simple and mundane and as regular as eating and drinking for the glory of God, then there's nothing that you can't do for his glory. As simple and as mundane as that task is, you can do it for the glory of God. you can also do it for the wrong reasons. And so this command is given in a negative form. The expectation is that we will have God's competing for our worship all the time. So the second point we turn to is this, the sins that are forbidden in the first commandment, namely idolatry. Idolatry is when the person or thing that we worship is someone or something other than God through Christ. Our temptation has always been to follow along with whatever everyone else is doing. And we desperately want to fit in. And so we read, you shall have no other gods before me. And that language before me actually suggests marital fidelity. It's used in the same context of infidelity or adultery. So it conveys the idea of going after foreign gods and introducing them to their acts of worship. Deuteronomy 6.14 gives that idea. So John Calvin said this, the sin of idolatry is like a shameless woman who brings in an adulterer before her husband's very eyes only to vex his mind the more. It's not just to have an affair, it's to do so openly in front of your spouse. That's what idolatry is. That's why he says, you shall have no other gods before me, in my presence, right in front of me. A healthy marriage has absolutely no interest in an open relationship. Jealousy is part and parcel with wanting all of my wife. Not wanting to share her and so to suggest that i would be more satisfied if i could have a second wife would be hurtful to her it'd be shameful in fact it's it's certainly not going to increase my love for her it's certainly not going to impact my loyalty to her it's only going to call all of that into question And so idolatry is likened to open infidelity. There is nothing secret about it. The topic is personified in the life of Hosea, whose wife, Gomer, repeatedly betrayed her vows. She took Hosea's gifts and spent them on other lovers, in fact. He would rescue her, he would redeem her, and she would take those gifts and then then run off with them and offer them to other lovers. It was shameful. And yet, what was it? It was an example. God called Hosea to this life because it was an example of Israel's treatment of him, of her own idolatry. The Hattelberg Catechism, questions 95, says, idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. It's to put our trust instead of or in addition to the one true God. That is what idolatry is. So ancient idolatry was not all that different from modern idolatry. The gods of the ancient Near East were many and ubiquitous. They, they covered every, everything that they did. And not only were they convenient to worship, but they played to the baser values of humanity. Worship was in, associated with indulgence. And so there was these grand festivals that would take place, feasts that would happen, where people would, would gather together and, and overindulge and, in, and engage in cult prostitution in order to try to convince the gods to do the same, to procreate so that they would would bless their people. And so it was integrated with economic prosperity. While it it certainly looked different than modern idolatry, the motives of the worshipers were the same. Through Molech, through Baal, through Mammon, cultures worshipped cruelty, lust, power, And greed. We continue to seek these same ends today, whether it looks like the respectable businessman who works 80 hours a week or the selfish husband who secretly indulges in pornography. Jesus Christ alone shunned all idols, He placed nothing above God. He never stole, <clears throat> stole a lustful glance. He always prioritized God in all things. He was an excellent craftsman. He was an excellent student. He was a dutiful and obedient son. And he was a perfect servant leader. In everything that he did, he did all things for the glory of God. And so while he grew in skill and even understanding as a human, his motivation to do all things for the glory of God never wavered. Not at any point in his life were his desires in conflict. God was always first. And so the kind of unfaithfulness that our idolatry represents could only be met and satisfied by the faithfulness of Christ upon the cross who dies in our place, right? The more, the more prevalent Christianity is in a culture, the weaker the hold of idolatry can have. Morality rooted in Christian doctrine has historically produced far more peaceful societies, and that's because believers begin to reflect the true humility of their Savior. See, Christ, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, did not, did not uh, feel the need to grasp or hold on to equality with God. Instead, he emptied himself. He humbled himself to a servant. He came in the flesh and he was perfectly obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And it's because of his example that Paul then calls the Philippian church to express that same humility because without that humility, we cannot have unity. There will always be division and conflict. But when we worship Christ, when we worship God alone through Christ, what happens? Those, those barriers, those walls of conflict and division are torn down. Nothing can be more important than God and that includes your health as well as your politics. That includes your pursuit of success and your desire for shameful entertainment. These are not only the gods of our culture, but they exist within the walls of modern evangelicalism the church, the fact that the average professing Christian looks just like the world implies that our worship is not very different from idolatry. Have you considered that? If, if we're offering true worship, then we are going to be transformed by the God we worship from one degree of glory to the next. And so if we look nothing different from the world, if we look just like our neighbor, then it can only mean that our worship, in fact, is idolatry. And now that we have seen the the positive and the negative aspects of this command, let's consider the foundational nature of the first commandment, the foundational nature of the first commandment. The, just as, as we cannot overlook the importance of the prologue and we considered that last week <sighs> As the context in which God gives the commands. You don't consider any of these 10 commandments outside of the context of the prologue, but the first commandment serves as the foundation for the other nine. The primacy of this command indicates its importance and foundational nature. The first commandment is at the root of every other commandment. In order to break two through 10, you must have already broken the first commandment. And so idolatry represents the depraved nature with which we were born. All right, but we don't like to acknowledge that. We'd rather think of ourselves as being neutral, being able to choose good or bad. But Jesus didn't die on the cross in an attempt to convince a neutral people to receive his love. He didn't, dry, didn't die on the cross in order to try to win people to himself as if, as if he, he, he was so desperate for us that he, that he had to, to show the most extreme sacrifice. No, he died for us, in fact, while we were enemies. There was no neutrality. We were enemies of him. We were the ones driving the nail with our sin. He died for us while we were enemies in the midst of our grossest idolatry. I like what Michael Horton says here. He says, to see the cross is not to see the measure of how worthy I am, Look what God endured because I am so good and worth it and valuable. Now to see the cross is not to see the measure of how worthy I am, but of how unworthy. How shameful and guilty I am apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. And so the cross re- reveals the unworthiness of sinners. However, our our complete unworthiness is met by Christ's infinite worth. Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the law. He didn't fulfill 99% of it so that we could do that 1% ourselves. He fulfilled it entirely and perfectly on behalf of all who place their faith in him. If Christ's sacrifice were only partial, even 99.9%, then none of us could ever be rescued. Without Christ, no one can obey the first commandment. And so flee to Christ. You must be clothed in his perfect righteousness. Only then do we enter into that covenantal relationship with God. Those who are in Christ now begin to reflect his image. They're being renewed so that idolatry makes no sense. That's not to say that we ever completely are able to forsake our idols. You know, as Calvin says, we're continually manufacturing new ones in our mind, perpetual, where our minds are perpetual idol factories. But God remains worthy to receive all of our worship. And now through Christ, it is possible to offer it to him. It is possible to come before him and to worship him in spirit and in truth. God provides the ability to obey the first commandment through the means of the active and passive obedience of Christ and the enabling work of his Holy Spirit. And so God alone is worthy to receive all of the worship he created us to offer. Worship God above all. Devote your attention to him. Pour all of your energy, your thoughts into him. Make him central in everything you do. That's not to say you can't go to work. That's not to say that you can't w- even do things in your yard or, or spend time sweeping. You can do it all for his glory. You can be focused in in worshiping him in everything. Only through Christ can we turn from idols and so repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. The name that is above all names. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this reminder that you have revealed yourself to us most perfectly in your son. And so as we look to Christ, we, we see you. As we, as we acknowledge what he has done for us, we can come and know you. We can know something of your attributes. We can know you as you've revealed yourself to us. By your spirit, you've enabled us. You've opened our eyes and given us ears to hear. Lord, if anyone is here that has not done so, Lord, I pray that you would have mercy upon them, that by your grace, you might give them faith, you might grant them the gift of repentance and draw them to yourself or cause them to humbly come before you to see where they have forsaken you and turn to idols and cause them to place all of their hope and trust in you through Christ. For your glory, we ask it in his name. Amen.